Our scripture today is 1 John 2, 15 through 17, and I will read that momentarily. But let's start today by talking about rivals. There are all different kinds of rivalries that we see played out, but I'm talking about those entities that compete with one another for superiority in our hearts and lives and sometimes pocketbooks. In our house this week, that meant the Giants versus the Dodgers. And I told Mark I would not say anything about the strike. Right? (laughs) Now, both teams, of course, originally from New York, now in California. The competition and the rivalry has been going on for 131 years. Not going to slow down anytime soon. Maybe baseball isn't your thing. How about Coke versus Pepsi? Both of those companies traced their beginnings to the 1890s, but it wasn't until 1975 that the rivalry heated up because the Pepsi company said that they proved in a blind taste test that more people preferred their beverage over Coke. So maybe you don't like sports or soda. How about Star Trek or Star Wars? That conversation may literally come down to when you were born. However, some get around it by saying that Star Wars is science fantasy and Star Trek is science fiction. Okay, well, let's go on. Mr. Edison or Mr. Tesla, Microsoft or Apple, BTS or XO, Texas or Kansas City Barbecue, Mount Everest or K2, predestination or free will, we could go on. Did you know that over 70 years ago, two brothers had a successful shoe company in Germany, and abruptly they parted ways for no good reason. They became rivals in their tiny little town, and the river uh, was the, the demarcation with one over here and one over here, and one became Adidas and one became Puma. Did you know that? Their split didn't just affect one another. The whole community pretty much had to choose which shoes were better and which company to work for. So why are we talking about this, Pastor Colleen? Because in William Barclay's commentary, the heading for the section of the scripture that we read this week says this, rivals for the human heart. And that resonated with me because in the rivalries we just discussed, these companies are competing for our affection in some way or another. And often we are glad to give a choice, Coke, to give our affinity and our money to something we really like, but it's more than that. It's not just that we give our loyalty and our affection to a brand, a team, a theology, or which area of the country has the best barbecue. It's that somehow we identify with what we love. We form attachments in a way that informs our choices, sometimes our experiences. I like Coke because my grandmother gave it to me when I was quite little. I like the taste of that. It reminds me of being in her back porch and talking with her and hanging out with her. Sometimes those choices then form our souls. In many cases, what we love become, can become prominent places of belonging. What we hold dear becomes part of who we are, making up the mosaic and the uniqueness of our lives In the three verses we study today, John is pointing out a rivalry where we do have to make a choice, and that choice matters greatly. He's talking about what we love, and his point is that when our hearts get engaged with the world, it pulls us away from God the Father. 
The world and God are competing entities for our souls. And John is setting up a command couched in a warning that we all need to listen to, even though we might not like it much. God is not agnostic about the eternal choices we make in life. He has an opinion and a will for us to live by. And scripture is the main vehicle for us knowing that will. It reminds me of a quote from a minister in Virginia in 1844 named Frederick Berman, who said this, Preachers are meant to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So let's see what Pastor John has to say to us today. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. This is the word of the Lord. So let's get clear first about what John means when he says world. He uses this term six times. In these verses, John often talks about the world in his writings, and when he does, he means one of two things. He either means the created world, the ordered system that God set up in motion. We know the astoundingly complex material universe where creation as we know it exists, the place he made for us to love and enjoy, where we're meant to understand deep facets of God's truth and beauty. The other meaning for John is the fallen human condition that lives in direct opposition to God. He's been talking about darkness in this section, and he's reminding readers to be on guard against the world that operates in the power of evil but looks like harmless pleasure. John saw the heart as wrestling between these two conflicting entities, and that creates a dilemma for humanity And because of this, John is telling us, you have to recognize the tension between God and the world and then choose wisely whom you will love. Humanity has has taken what God has given and we've made it about us, what we want, how our needs should come first, how our ego needs to be validated. We long for love, but then often look for it outside God. The scripture then is about what we value, isn't it? The rivalry for the affection of the human heart with God on one side and the world that humans have made in its own image on the other. The affirmations from last week now become warnings to the fathers and the young people and the little children so that they don't fall into spiritual duplicity where their hearts are trying to be in two different places at once. So let's look at three exhortations John gives us for how to deal with the rivalry that already exists in our souls between our love for the world and our love for God. In verse 15, we see the first exhortation, and it is this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So we need to know what the word for love here is if we're going to understand the danger that John is talking about. The word for love here actually is agape. Remember that there's eros, which is sensual love, 
and philia, which is friendship love, and agape, which is the highest, purest form of love. It's the love that God expresses toward us, a love that is sacrificial, a love that cherishes the other. So let's stop and think about this for a second. John is emphatically telling us that we should not have a deep devotion to the world, that we should not give our hearts fully to what we can experience here instead of the Lord. We often think about agape as only one way from God to us, which is an overwhelming and humbling truth. We are God's treasured children. In his nature, God is pure and complete love. So this is saying that it's possible for us to give our best, our most sacred expression to a world that cannot give back the love that we are created to have. That we can agape the world. And then we think about idolatry and how idolatry is the reality that we have made a prize of something only because of the value that we give it. So John is saying that to agape the world displaces the love of God in our lives, that we show the reality of what we love every day. And John is saying they are mutually exclusive loves, and we have to decide what we love the most. And we know this isn't something that we do once. It's something that we have to decide all the time because our hearts wander Our hearts get beguiled by our own desires, our own understanding. And we have to keep coming to the place again and again where we will decide what we commit to love. So there has to be a delineation of what we love and a discerning awareness because the human heart can't be divided. When talking about money and God, Jesus says, you're going to hate one or love the other. You can't serve both. People don't simultaneously love the Yankees and the Red Sox. True fans would say, if you do, then you're not a fan of either. We can't hedge our bets and say we love God while still giving our best to the world around us. Love is a decision where we commit to someone or something wholeheartedly and then forsake all others. I was thinking this week that John gives this command because to love is to be vulnerable. It is to give who we are to another because we trust them. Because we believe that there's something in this dynamic that we're doing together, that we will have our needs met, that we will be loved in return. We're designed to love God first. This is the directive that John has been talking about. Have no other gods before me, God says. And Jesus clarifies, love God. Love God with all that you are. And then John twists it up a little bit. He says, if you love the world as you should love the Father, then God's love isn't in you. The unhealthy attachment to the world doesn't come from God, but comes from something broken and deep within us. And then we think about other scriptures that are familiar to us, like James 4.4, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? I don't know how these words from John show up for you today. 
But I do know that this truth cuts through our attitudes, our rationalizations, the ways we struggle, the sins we commit. What do you love most of all in your life? If it's anything more than God, John is telling us to make a change. The second exhortation here given for us to deal with this rivalry between God and the world is to remind us of the world's character. In verse 16, John says that all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches, doesn't come from God. It comes from the world. Now, there's something interesting also about this. In other places in the New Testament, Paul and others will list out a bunch of sins. You've seen those before. Calling out the church, don't do this or this or this. How curious that John doesn't do that. He is acknowledging that those things happen in the world. There is evil in the world. But he talks about desire, and desire is a synonym of lust. And he talks about it in such a way that he's reminding us that those things originate inside of us, not outside of us. Yes, those sins exist, but John is talking more about our reactions to them than what they themselves are. As Jesus reminded us in Mark 7, when he himself gives a list of wrong behavior, that sin originates inside of us, not outside of us. And Jesus says sexual immorality and greed and envy and malice and slander all originate in our souls first. We're not accountable for what happens outside of us, but rather for what we generate inside that easily finds a place for expression in the world. So John lists three characteristics of the world that the church should avoid. First, he starts with the desire of the flesh. This is a life where a person is dominated by their senses. It's to live for pleasure, and that's a big interpretation. It's a warning that our bodily appetites can lead us away from God. Yes, this is about sex, but it's also about gluttony and sloth and the ways that we seek highs through other substances. Two, he says, the desire of the eyes can be captivated with a great longing for something that could corrupt us. In one of my readings this week, it said, think about the apple in the Garden of Eden, or David in Bathsheba, or when Jesus told the rich man to sell all he had to come and be a disciple. And the guy just couldn't do it. The desire of the eyes is a metaphor for something that we have to have no matter the cost. Sometimes we get a single-mindedness and we say, we have to have that. No matter what. No matter what happens around us, no matter what anyone else thinks or wants for us, we have to have that. And John is saying, That's a warning. Don't do that. Don't prize those things in life above who God is. Third, he said, pride and riches means boasting in one's good fortune and one's material possessions. This has a connotation of bragging, a person who wants to be seen as having more than they actually do or being more than they actually are. Sometimes we puff ourselves up a little bit in good company because we want to be seen as being more than we are, because we feel insecure about what we have or something that we don't like about ourselves. This can be also arrogance or elitism, an overconfidence in oneself that pushes out God. 
So this raises a question for us to think about. How do we find the line between living in the world and the many enjoyments that God has given us? Where do we find the place of that? Where do we know that God's holiness in our lives has been transgressed? By the way, this isn't thinking about our neighbor. We could maybe easily see how our neighbors mess up in this way. But this is thinking about our own hearts. The place where no one else can see except for God. Where are you repulsed by the world standards and where are you infatuated with them? Can you see the place in your life Something where God's holiness has been transgressed, something that you've watched or participated in or done. Thankfully, we are not the deciders of what is right or wrong, not as people or the church. God makes it pretty evident what is offensive and not okay. The Holy Spirit brings conviction when our affections are engaged too much in the world around us. Pastor Denny used to say that Christians have become quite adept at managing and tolerating their sin. May that not be true of us. May we continue to be content with loving God and what God loves. The last exhortation Pastor John gives is to remind the church about what is eternal. He says, remember everything in the world and its desires are soon going to pass away. But those who do the will of God live forever. When I was reading this, I thought a little bit about being on a bridge and running across it while the bridge is like breaking behind us. How things just deteriorate and change around us all of the time. This morning we sang really what is one of the greatest hymns ever written by Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was a teenager when he came home from church one day and he told his father, wow, those songs that we're singing are so bad. And his father said, then why don't you write some? And boy, did he take that in his heart. He published this particular hymn in 1707 and he wrote it as a preparation for communion. It was controversial then because um, it involved a personal religious experience, and it was the first hymn to use a personal pronoun. As you look at the words in your bulletin for just a second again, think about how Isaac Watts really resonates with this whole idea of the rivalry between the world and the Lord. My richest gain, he says, I count but loss. I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. If I had all of nature and I gave it to God, he says, that would be a present too small. Because love so amazing and divine Demands my soul, my life, my all. There's a whole picture here of the cross, of Jesus' head and hands and feet, sorrow and love mingling down because of his love for us. The world has given us nothing. And Jesus has given us everything. 
And John says that to be charmed by the world, to get what we want from it is foolish because everything here is going to be gone soon. God in his glory has outlasted everything and will continue until Jesus returns and makes all things new. What's permanent is our relationship with him and with one another. It's interesting if you follow the thread of both the world and God in these verses, and you will see that they are perfectly juxtaposed to one another. Listen to them as uh, the NIV has pulled them apart. It sounds a little bit like Yoda. Love of the world comes from the world. The world passes away. Love of the Father comes from the Father. The one who obeys God is forever. Have you ever been in competition with someone for the attention or the affection of another? I'm sure you have. With a teacher, a coach, a friend, a parent, a boss, a romantic interest. In those situations, you were vulnerable to the person from whom you wanted love, hoping that you were important enough to them. That often doesn't feel great. And then we think about how this is what the Lord does with us. That we are given the choice to love as we will. While he waits for us to choose him. On the cross, Jesus could not have been more vulnerable. As he gave his life out of great love for us. The rivalry of the world and the Father is one that we are going to always grapple with in our lives here. So let's spend time with the Lord now in prayer as we talk with him about what our relationship with him looks like right now. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.